Folks, it's good to be with you here this evening and to be back uh, preaching Romans with you. I think it's fair to say that all of us who've shared in this series so far have probably found our passages hard going for one reason or another. Um, This is the 15th part of our sermon series. Uh, That's substantially longer already than, than most sermon series that I would prepare or plan for life in Kirkpatrick here. To put it into context, though, um, I discovered earlier this week that uh, John Piper, when he had an opportunity to teach through Romans, took 225 sermons to do it. Um, So if if that helps you, if you're feeling uh, that this has taken a bit of time on our part, uh, maybe you'll forgive us uh, and see that other people have, have taken a longer road still than this one. I'm going to need God's help, and I guess you will maybe too, so let's ask for it. Let's pray. Father God, we know that your word is is a gift to us, that it's like honey, uh, sweet to the taste, that it's like a double-edged sword that cuts, cuts to the deepest parts when that's what's needed. Lord, we believe that all of your word is inspired by you and is useful for us. Lord, help us this evening with this particular passage. Help us to to pay attention uh, to what you might say to us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As David has been leading so far this evening, he's he's picked up on on chapter 8 of Romans, and he's reminded us of just what a high point it is in the whole book. What wonderful stuff there is there. Paul's been reflecting on the gospel that he's articulated throughout the book so far. And I think in chapter 8, he he basically gets to the point where he celebrates it. So he says in the opening verse, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And because of our confidence in the gospel and in the God who gives us the gospel, he says that we can stand strong in all circumstances. He says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And he finishes the great chapter reminding us that nothing will ever separate those who love God from his love. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the the wonderful news that we celebrate. In Christ Jesus, we are no longer condemned. In fact, God, rather than condemning us, works all things for our good. And we're assured that nothing No power in nature, no power in the universe can separate us from God's love. Wow. This is the gospel, and it's amazing. It's just brilliant to be a Christian and to be in Christ. If we could only see it, if our hearts were only big enough, then there'd be much for us to celebrate always and often in our lives. 
Chapter 8 is a, a, an emotional song of celebration in many ways. Paul just recognizing the, the glory of the gospel and laying it out before us. When we get to the opening verses of chapter 9, the emotion's equally strong but entirely different. I don't know if you noticed it. Verse 2. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. How do you get from the end of chapter 8 so quickly to the opening sentiments of chapter 9? Paul's in anguish. What's the reason for it? It's that his family, his fellow Jews, who've had so many blessings in their covenant relationship with God, have failed to receive God's Savior in Jesus Christ. They're missing out on everything that he's just described in chapter 8. Tom Wright says that at this point, Paul is like somebody driving in convoy. I don't know if you've ever done this, gone on your holidays or gone for a day out with some people, and you come to a fork in the road and you turn left and you notice in your rearview mirror that everyone else is going right. Why did they go that way? Did they miss all the signs that I saw pointing me this way? What's going to happen to them? Unless we recognize that there's something like that going on, then Paul's anguish here is something that's going to pass us by. And his desperate prayer in verse 3 won't make any sense to us at all. Paul's heading in this direction. But his people, by and large, are going in the opposite direction. This is a very specific subject that chapter 9 deals with. It deals with the place of the the Jewish people in the ongoing purposes of God. But I think from a a pastoral point of view and, and how this might apply to us, I think there's an anguish here that we know something of, many of us. Perhaps you're here this evening and you've found fullness of life in Jesus Christ. You're trusting in him for your present, for your eternal future. But there's a shadow that comes with all of this. It's as though the gospel itself casts a shadow. The more you live in the light, the more you celebrate everything that you have in Jesus, the more it breaks your heart to think of those who don't know Christ. Our colleagues and their friends, our family, our lovers. Like Paul, we too have great sorrow and great anguish in our hearts. We wish what we hope and we pray that that they would be in Christ, but they're not. At least not yet. Maybe you're living with that kind of an anguish. I know, I know that we will be, many of us. Whenever we have to live with that stark reality that some people respond to the grace of God in Jesus Christ 
And some people, for some reason, don't. It forces us to, to come before God with some, some pretty big questions. As I've said already, this is a very specific case that Paul's dealing with. I think the best thing that we can do this evening is to track Paul in his thinking, his frustration, and his argument, and see if by his Spirit God might, might speak to us. For Paul, the specific question about the Jews, he begins to wonder, has God's plan gone wrong? I think that's Paul's question in verse 6. If we can deal satisfactorily with that question and we see somehow that God's plan is still on track, then we're confronted with another question. Well, if God's plan hasn't gone wrong, then how can it be fair, this reality that some people come to Christ and others don't? And that's Paul's second question that we'll come to later in the chapter. Those two questions, has God's plan gone wrong and is God fair? Those are the two questions that Paul deals with in chapter 9 of Romans. I want to offer you another metaphor for what's going on here and how Paul is proceeding in chapter 9. If you're in unfamiliar territory, uh, you rely on a map to, to show you the way to go. The map's the bottom line. So if you've been going with your map, and after a while you find yourself somewhere that you didn't want to be, then you scratch your head for a moment, you get your map out again, and you figure out where you went wrong. You mistook that turning for this one. So you took the road that went over there rather than the road that went over here. So no wonder you've landed on the wrong side of the river. You have to go to the back and start again in the place where you've made your mistake. That, in essence, is what Paul does here in Romans 9. He says that the Jewish people need to go back and see where they went wrong and start all over again. Look at verse 6. We've already said that this is where we're going to start this evening. It's not as though God's word has failed He's asking, in effect, has God's plan gone wrong? He's open to the idea that it's not the map reading that's been wrong, but it's the map itself. He's open to that idea. But he spends now the bulk of chapter 9 taking us back to the beginning, pointing out wrong turns that we've made and showing that the map's right all along. And he does that. I, I'm not sure you'll have noticed it, but let me point it out to you. He does it by retelling the story of the people of Israel. He begins in verses 6 to 13 by going right back to the beginning, right back to the patriarchs, those early fathers of the people of Israel. And he finds when he goes back there that God has always chosen to work by selection. And this is interesting. God not only chose to select one family from out of humanity, but he continued to select from within that family. That seems to be the point that Paul wants to make. So, for example, God selected Abraham. That's the, the big first selection that God made that, that maybe you know about. But in the next generation, God selects again from among Abraham's two sons, 
Isaac, and Ishmael. God had chosen Isaac. Now, it wasn't on the grounds of morality. Sometimes um, we imagine that it was because um, Isaac was born to, to Sarah, Abram's wife, that he was somehow superior, that Ishmael, born to Hagar, the main servant, maidservant, was somehow inferior. The Bible doesn't allow for that, actually. It might look that way superficially in that generation, but in the next generation, we have two twins born to Isaac's wife, Rebekah. So this time, they both have the same father, they both have the same mother, and this time again, God defies the natural order and he chooses the younger one, the younger Jacob, rather than the older Esau. So in two generations now, God's chosen from among two sons. Now most Jews that Paul was writing to, they would have understood that. And they would have said, yeah, that's fair enough. There was something going on in those early generations of the patriarchs that God seemed to choose one and not the other. But this is where Paul breaks new ground. Paul says that that practice of continuing to select, that practice continues. That God chooses to work his purposes out through some rather than others. And it went past way beyond Jacob right through the subsequent history of Israel. And Paul would argue it's continued right down until the time when this Messiah himself appeared and took on Israel's destiny for himself. So that's the first thing that Paul points out to his readers as he goes back to the map and he shows them how they have misread it. God's always chosen those who would carry his plan forward. The second thing that Paul wants to, to point out to them is that God's selection isn't on the basis of morality. God doesn't choose the good guys and forget about the bad guys. That's not how it works. The Jews love to think of it this way. They love to think actually that in that first selection, that when God chose Abraham, God chose him because he was a particularly good guy, that he'd be great stock to start out with a new nation. And that somehow the, the Jews who descended from Jacob were somehow better than the people around them. This is the story that many of the Jews told themselves. Folks, it's a crazy notion if you take at all seriously the Bible. If you take seriously the account of Abraham's own life, he turns out not to be full of all these qualities that, that we might imagine he had. If you read on then to the story of Isaac and the, the soap opera of Jacob's life, we see how extraordinarily ordinary and sinful these guys are. God chooses who he's going to work through, but it's not on the basis of virtue. So Paul's made these two points as he invites us to look back to the life of the patriarchs. God's continued choice of his people and the fact that it's not based on their virtue. This is hard going, isn't it? Hard going from verse 6 down to verse 12, and then you get to verse 13. 
our unease comes to a head when Paul quotes the prophet Malachi. He says, Jacob I hated, but Esau. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. It seems at first as though Paul's going from bad to worse. Maybe he has defended God from, from the, the, the charge of incompetence, failure to do what he had promised to do. But if he has, he's only landed him with a far worse charge, and that is a flagrant favoritism and injustice. Paul's well aware of that charge, and he's going to come to that in verse 14. What do we make of chapter 13? Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Flick back with me for a second to the passage that's being quoted here. Malachi 1 on page 960. Malachi, the very last book of the Old Testament. The very opening verses, Malachi's prophecy begins with these very stark words. We're told there that that these words are spoken by God himself as he addresses his people Israel. And he says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. God's speaking here to Jacob, if you like, to the loved brother. He's reminding them of the grace that he extended them when they were chosen. He does so in order to remind them of their responsibility and to show them that they're, they're culpable for their failure to honor God. This isn't about favoritism. It's not God saying, you're special so you can sit back and take it easy. This is about responsibility. God says, in effect, you're special, so why are you taking me for granted? Why are you failing to honor me? Why are you ignoring my call to carry forward my purposes? When God chooses, it's not so that his people can be in can act superior and arrogant. To have any sense that God has chosen us means only that we carry a responsibility to live out his calling in this world. Much is expected of those to whom much is given. So Paul's been answering his first rhetorical question, has God's plan failed or is God incompetent, as I put it earlier? In verses 14 to 29, he deals with a second related question. Look at verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? It's the next logical question. If God has chosen to work through some and not through others, are we not entitled to expose him as unjust? To answer this question, Paul continues to retell the story of the people of Israel. He's dealt with the patriarchs in verses 7 to 13, and now he, he dwells for a moment on the events of the Exodus. Verses 14 to 18. 
From the scriptural record of the Exodus, he quotes from Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, when God spoke through Moses to Pharaoh, and he says, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh, you've been raised up for my purposes. Then God reminds, or sorry, Paul reminds his readers of God's word to Moses as he leads the people towards the promised land. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. That's a quote from Exodus 33:19. And in verse 18, he combines these two ideas. He says, God will have mercy on whom he has mercy, and he'll harden whom he wants to harden. God raised up Pharaoh to harden him, and he chose Israel under Moses to have mercy on them. It's another hard teaching. And we just want to respond to it. So Paul anticipates our response. Verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? And Paul gives a pretty stark rebuttal. And it's pretty unpalatable to our modern sensibilities. He says we're not entitled to speak like that. But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common uses? This isn't getting any easier, is it? It seems to me as though Paul's just digging himself deeper and deeper into a hole. It feels here like he's implying that human beings are just like a lump of clay and that they wait for God to mold them this way and that and we just have to put up and shut up because that's how it is. We need to remember what's going on here. Paul is not talking in general terms about humanity and about human nature. He's asking us, he's using this very famous image of the potter and the clay, and he's using it to retell the story of Israel. This is an image that crops up time and again in Isaiah 29, 16, in 45, verse 9, and it has echoes in 64, verse 8. The same image is used in Jeremiah 18, 1 to 6. All of those passages are worth looking up if you want to really come to terms with this image of the potter and the clay. We don't have time to do it this evening. The prophets were talking about a time when God was struggling with rebellious Israel. Like a potter working with clay that simply refused to get into the right shape. This image then isn't talking in general terms about human nature, about people as lifeless lumps of clay and of God as forcing this way and that. The image is designed very specifically to speak about God's purposes in choosing and calling Israel and about what would happen if 
Israel, like a lump of clay, failed to respond to the molding of God's hands. If you've been following my train of thought, you'll see that I'm down to about verse 21 by now. In verses 22 to 24, Paul explains how God's grace has been at work in all of this. Paul's been using this analogy of the potter and the clay. Pottery, as you know, has two main processes. First, there's the shaping, and that's the the part that the, the biblical allusions mostly focus on. And secondly, the clay is fired into its final and fixed form. Paul seems to be saying here that God hasn't yet arrived at the moment where the clay goes into the oven and comes out solid in its final and fixed form. If he had, then there'd be no options for him but to live with what there is or to throw it to the ground and smash it and break it. Fortunately for Israel and for the world, When Israel rebelled against God, the process was still at the molding stage. If a pot's spoiled in the molding stage, then the potter's entitled to, and actually it's incumbent on him to deal with that flawed pot while the process still allows it. What would we prefer? that he threw the clay away altogether and start with an entirely new clay? With this argument so far, Paul's established, one, that God's promises haven't failed, and two, that God is entirely within his rights to remold his people. He's now going to elaborate on the way in which God has remolded his people And it's by calling the Gentiles, non-Jews, to share as full and equal members. The big remolding that happened is when God passed the torch from a group of people made up predominantly of Jews to a group of people that included Jews, but also welcomed those of other nations, Jews and Gentiles together. In verses 25 to 29, Paul continues his survey of the history of God's people. He points us back to the the prophets. They had predicted this remolding of the people long ago. Through Hosea, God had said, I'll call them my people who are not my people. I'll call her my loved one who is not my loved one. With this and the next quotation from Hosea, Paul's reminding his readers that the prophets had already predicted all of this. God was going to make Israel pass through a a period of judgment before they'd known his salvation. Paul's point, yet another time, is that God has kept his word. He hasn't gone back in his word. He said all along that he'd whittle Israel down to a remnant. And now that's what he's done. The Isaiah passage quoted in verses 27 to 28 reinforces this idea. There were a huge number of ethnic Israelites, as God had promised, but only a remnant of them would be rescued. 
So in the final quote from Isaiah in verse 29, we make this point that God, that if God hadn't left them a remnant, Israel as a whole, Abram's family as a whole, would have become extinct, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, the clay thrown to the side. Chapter 9 has been complex and dense, just like some of these recent chapters have been. But Paul has answered these two questions that he said himself. God's word, in answer to the question of verse 6, has not failed. On the contrary, we've seen time and again throughout the chapter that God's words come true. He's dealt with the second question of verse 14 in the process as well. He's shown that God is not unjust. God has had to deal with Israel, not as a blank slate, but as a rebellious people deserving judgment. When that judgment's fallen, Israel has no reason for complaint. In fact, God's been merciful to them. He's rescued a remnant of people from a people who are sinful through and through. In the final verses of the chapter, and I'm not going to deal with them in any length this evening, Paul brings us back to the wonderful truth of the gospel. He brings us back to the great theme of Romans, justification by faith. He says the Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness have obtained it because it's a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. Those who have been open to Jesus, who have trusted in him, who have recognized that it's by faith in him, have been welcomed and received by God. It's those who pursued God by their own works, who failed to to recognize that all of this is a gift of God's grace. They are those who have fallen. And, And Paul uses a very stark image, that of the 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 block, the foundation stone. Jesus Christ, Paul tells us, is someone who either becomes the foundation of your life, you stand on him, you build on him, he's the center and the core of everything, or he's like a rock in the road that you trip over and fall. The difference is as stark as that. And it's all about our response to Jesus. Friends, we, we saw at the start of chapter 9 Paul's anguish over his loved ones, the Jews who were not responding to Jesus Christ. We recognize the anguish that, that we experience as our friends and our colleagues, our loved ones too, in many cases have not yet responded to Jesus. 
from Paul's teaching in chapter 9, I'd, I'd encourage you to take seriously that A, God's plans have not failed, and also B, that, that God is not unjust. I'd encourage you to recognize the truth that the crux of the matter is faith in Jesus Christ. Continue to point your friends, your family, your loved ones, your children, point them to Jesus. He's the only grounds for faith. He's the only one who can make us right with God. Continue to point them to him, teach them of him, and pray for them. Pray for them that one day, the the light of the gospel will shine on them too. That God in his mercy would reach out to them by his spirit and would draw them to himself. Let's take a moment in the silence and remember one or two people whom God brings to our hearts just now. With Paul we say, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Folks, I don't want to explain away that sorrow or anguish this evening because if I do, I fail you in God's word. You'll see when we come to chapter 10 next week that the sorrow and anguish isn't gone. Paul's still in anguish over his loved ones. But what does he do? He prays. Let's take a moment in the silence to pray for our loved ones who are not yet in Christ. Father God, hear us as we offer you these prayers in response to your word. Amen. I struggled to know how.